You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Welcome to TFM's local watering hole, and I'm just one of your hosts here, Matthew Rushing. So excited to have back, as is she is with me most of the weeks, but uh, Christy Morris, it's so good to have you back here in the 602 Club. Uh, that's Lilu Dallas, multipass. Multipass. <laughs> multipass. Yeah, she heard. It's a multipass. <laughs> oh, man. this Today is going to be so much fun. Um, we are going to be diving into uh, what is, I think, become almost a cult classic, kind of in, in many ways. Uh, the fifth element, uh, and so excited to to be doing that with you, Christy. And uh, before we do it, of course, just want to say a quick reminder. You know, find us wherever you get your podcasts, please. Uh, you know, if you're on Apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate it if you gave us a star rating and review. Uh, it still helps the show grow. It helps people find it as they're searching for podcasts and the Apple system still one of the main places, honestly, the main place even for this show that people find it. So. We would really appreciate that. Uh, of course, again, though, you could find it wherever you get podcasts. So whether on Spotify or, you know, Amazon Music or any of the podcatchers out there, you can find us and just make sure you're subscribed and you'll get the show as soon as it drops. Of course, please, if you're listening to the show, go over to Twitter and follow us on the 602 Club. Uh, also on Instagram at the 602 Club TFM. Those are great ways to keep up with everything that's going on with the show, especially as uh, John Mills and I have a Snyder Cup that's coming out very soon. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you could find us uh, online at trek.fm or on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And then there's the listeners only discussion group, the Babel Conference, where you can talk to listeners from all over the world. Uh, about what's going on on the network. And then last but not least, do want to say a huge thank you to our associate producers here, Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Ryan Millett, and Daniel Noah. They support us on Patreon. Make sure that the 602 Club, as well as the rest of what's on the network, keeps coming to you. And in all honesty, folks, um, our our Patreon is is definitely been dropping, and, and we could definitely use your support. So please go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can be part of our team. So, Christy, we already mentioned that we're going to be talking about The Fifth Element. And as we do many times with so many of these films that we've been talking about because we haven't had as many new releases, I was really wondering how you came to this movie, like how you found it. Yeah, so this actually came out, I'm going to age myself, when I was 10 years old. And uh, it was actually not one that I saw in the theater, but that my dad showed me at home um, when it came out. I believe either he bought it on physical media or um, we watched it on TV. But I was even asking him today if he remembered the very first viewing and he couldn't remember. We've seen it that many times. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, for me, that's, you know, another in the long list of things that like my dad and I always share and joke about and have those one-liners that we will bring into conversations randomly. So, you know, there's just films like this that become ingrained yeah. in your vernacular. And I'm wondering if it's the same for you. You know, I so 
Before we started recording, you you kind of asked me this question, and I can't truly remember the first time that I saw this movie. And, and you know, it came out mm-hmm. in 97, which was I was a senior in high school at that point. And um, I'm pretty sure that I ended up seeing this in the movie theater. But I just, it, it's one of those things where... Like you said, the movie has been with me for so long now that I, it's hard for me to remember exactly when I saw it. And, I, you know, I've liked it mm-hmm. since the first time I saw it. You know, um, I think, it, you know, it's an incra- it's a crazy, zany, ridiculous adventure um, with tons of, you know, it's just it's just out there and fun. And it, it has its own sense of being, which is which is neat, you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't like any of the other sci-fi type stuff I'd seen really. Um, you know, I think this is pulp sci-fi at its best. So Right. I, I guess. Oh, like that's yeah, the, just, that's should the get theory my ratings now we it. could be done. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, no, no. We have much more to say about that. But uh, I did want to say like that's the reason too that I was curious because I'm glad that you wanted to do this one with me because this is something that is so different. Although it, you know, combines a lot of things you see usually in science fiction movies right. and books and TV, there's also a lot of new things. And then the way it weaves all of them together, mm-hmm. it's just its own thing. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, you know, I, what's fascinating about this film is is that it really was a long time coming. You know, um, the director, Luke Benson, mm-hmm. uh, who directed this, uh, you know, he's gone on to direct many other things. But, um, you know, this was a story that he had started when he was 16 years old. By the time it comes out, you know, it's, he's 38, you know. So um, this movie had a long gestation period. And, you know, I, I think um, it, it's really interesting to me because of that, you know, that this this movie has so long been in the workings for him and it was something he'd been working on for a long time. Um, and it's really after his work on Leon and The Professional, which he has the clout where, and I was watching, so I bought the 4K edition, uh, and it's the 20th anniversary edition, and that he was talking about this idea mm-hmm. of, um, you know, once he had done those films, then movie studios came to him and are like, well, what do you want to do? And he was like, this. Um, and so, mm-hmm. you know, what I think is really interesting about this movie um is it's mixing the ideas that kind of, you know, been in pop culture for, I think, a long time of, like, aliens having to do with, like, an ancient Egypt and all of this, the kind of thing. And so I was wondering, you know, as as a story idea, you know, um, how all that works for you. I think it ends up working really well together for me because... I think that that's always been something I've heard as somebody who also loves Egyptian history and, you know, the mm-hmm. tombs and everything um, that the theories were by some people and even scientists that everything was so perfectly done in Egyptian culture that it had to have been some kind of alien or divine intervention because, you know, it's like the way the pyramids are shaped and the direction they all face and things like that. So I thought that that was a really good way for him to put that in to this this kind of story um just go with that and say aliens did it mm-hmm. and that the hieroglyphics have to do with them but then it also kind of even ties into religion yeah 
you know, if you look at the way that they're saying that there's this uh, perfect being at the center of it all, Mm -hmm. and that this whole thing is about the battle between good and evil and light and dark and... Yeah, no, I I think you're uh, absolutely right in that. And, you know, I think it is fascinating uh, idea. And, you know, one of the things that I think is, is, like you said, just kind of really smart about this is that it combines a lot of things that we are quite familiar with, you know, and by giving us the opportunity to really play around with the idea that, you know, ancient Egypt was linked with an alien culture. You know, obviously that's something that's also been played with, with an Indiana Jones in the kingdom of the crystal skull, you know, this idea that, a, mm-hmm. uh, an ancient, um, you know, and, and, uh, very advanced alien race had come down to earth, you know, and, and I think, you know, it, it makes it really interesting then, um, to be able to play with, you know, those ideas. And so, um, you know, I liked it. Um, I, I thought that this, um, I thought in many ways, you know, they did a a really good job with this in that. Um, and it made a lot of fun. And like you said, you know, what's really interesting is is that um, this this does kind of play with the ideas of religion and 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 it makes it it does have a, a slight depth to it in that sense you know like you said this is a you know this idea of a perfect being and you mm-hmm. know um them being the one that will help save us you know um and it, it it's what's interesting here obviously that's that you know I, I think is really fascinating is how that seems to ha- happen frequently like it's not just something that happens every once in a while but you know like in the sense Mm -hmm. of and i mean frequently in the sense that happens like every five thousand years or whatever like this happens to be a thing (laughs) it's pretty frequent but i mean you know more than (laughs) once right uh and so it it, uh, this 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 perfect being has the responsibility then to you know to save the the human race and so um it, yeah, I I thought that this was really really interesting, and I, I like the way you know that Vasan creates the story, and I think it it works really well. Um, and it it turned out to be a lot of fun, you know. And it was just smart, you know. I, I, and and I think, as you were mentioning earlier, it is just very different than any of the other types of uh, sci-fi that were really popular, I think, at the time, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, um, it, there there was so much happening um, sci-fi-wise, you know. Obviously, Star Wars, big deal, um, and things like that. But this was, this was its own thing, you know. And I, I think um, mm-hmm. it, was, it was really, um, I, I think... That's also one of the reasons why it wasn't, I don't think it really hit as well immediately with people because this really was different than, than most people expected. Uh, so, and what I found really right. fascinating was that uh, it has a comic inspiration in the sense that Besson met uh, a couple of French uh, comic creators, um, one of whom had helped create Valerian and Lorian 
who, you know, that series, Valerian and a Thousand uh, Moons, that get turned into a movie by Basson later on, they mm-hmm. helped with the production design and the film design. And so, and they're a major influence for what, you know, the movie ends up looking like, which makes sense. When I read that, I was like, oh, okay, I, I can totally see that this was, you know, um, two, two comic book artists that really helped create this. Um, and I, I think it really helps, again, I think it helps set the movie apart by making it, it it's its own thing and i really appreciate it i i um because the look and the feel of the movie it does have a slightly cartoonish bent to it um and yet mm-hmm. at the same time it's super imaginative as we're looking towards the future and everything and you know um playing around with and it put it this way it's kind of like how um back to the future 2 plays with that idea but this Mm-hmm. I thought was much better in his extrapolation of, you know, what things may look like um, and, um, you know, what uh, things would be. Uh, so, yeah, this I, really worked for me. And what these guys created, I thought, was spectacular, honestly. Yeah, I had to include that, too. Um, so I'm glad that you brought it up, that the design of everything, A, you can kind of tell after hearing that, that there are scenes that, are reminiscent of like a comic book spread. You know, I think back to the first scenes that you see of the city. Um, I believe it's Brooklyn where Corbin Dallas lives. Um, you know, it's, it's images freeze frame that you would think would, you'd see in a comic book of when he's pointing straight down and heading toward the fog, you know, going, weaving through a thousand different cars. And then, you know, having them at all as like hover yep. cars. Yes, reminds us of things like Back to the Future too. But, you know, there were other things that had depicted us possibly having flying vehicles in the future before that yeah. too. Um, so I, yeah, I like that he was inspired for the world building by comic artists and that they end up working together again. Um, and, and it's really cool that they have such a neat look for the cities, for the ship on Flossed in Paradise. I thought it was an interesting play on a cruise ship, but in the future. Um, and even like the apartment that Corbin Dallas lives in, um, you know, the planes, things like that, because it doesn't also seem that far fetched that it would end up that way. If you've seen like some of the hotels in Japan now, have sleeping situations like those little human mm-hmm. cubicles. Yeah. No, I, I 100% agree with you. And I think one of the things that um, this this movie does that's really smart and um, is that it has a sense of everything kind of being cohesive. And, and in many ways, it's like uh, an uber extrapolation of, you know, um, the, the life in New York City now. Um, but then in many ways, I, I think, you know, this is really kind of a precursor to Coruscant, right? Like the what New York looks yeah. like here is kind of what we get in Star Wars, uh, especially once we get to Episode One, Episode Two. Um, we see a little glimpse of this in '97 when we see uh, the um, the end of Return of the Jedi and the celebration on Coruscant. We kind of get an idea um, of what that's going to look like later in the prequels. But you know, in many ways, I do 
wonder if, you know, Lucas saw any of this because, you know, like you talked about the, the way that the flying cars work and the fact that they still have like traffic lanes we can see, you know, with the flying cars mm-hmm. and everything. That's all very Coruscant-ish like, you know, um, that would we would see in Star Wars. So, you know, they, I think, did a fantastic job of kind of setting this up in a really interesting way and, and creating a look and a feel for the film that just feels really right. Um, you know, I, I think uh, that on top of what makes this movie really interesting is obviously Besson is European. And I think that kind of plays into the way the film's costumed. You know, we get this kind of outlandish, mm-hmm. outrageous looking costumes, really bright, garish colors in the future. And I think it almost feels like the 80s on steroids in the sense of what the costumes look like. Um, but I, I like it. Again, I think one of the things that makes this work is that it really fits. And it feels cohesive as a whole for the creation of the world, the costumes the characters are wearing, uh, the effects work and everything. So I, I, re-watching it, I was finding myself impressed with the uh, creative aspect um, of the look and the feel of the film, all of the uh, the behind-the-scenes work that must have gone into the look of this film. Uh, and, I mean, you know, uh, Basan was even talking about this uh, a little bit in, in the extra that they had, uh, specifically on the 4K, which was this is the movie right before, you know, effects really change. Like the effects world completely changes, you know, in 90, uh, 98, you know, and as you move into, you know, the um, what you're going to see in like the Phantom Menace. But this is right before that, mm-hmm. before it really took over. Um, and so, so many of these effects are still with models and everything. And so all of that together, it just... It still really works, you know. I I think it's good. Yeah, I'm glad you said that too because like I love that they blend practical effects and then the digital work and the costumes yeah. all together so well. And I did want to add to the costuming. Every single costume apparently was done by French designer Jean-Paul Gaultier, um who is known for having a really controversial style. And um, in particular, I was watching an interview where they were talking to Chris Tucker about his costumes for Ruby Rod, because to me, those like stood out more than anyone yeah. else in the movie. <laughs> um, and he said, you know, that is never something that I would have worn. <laughs> and he said, but, uh, you know, Jean-Paul was telling me about how he came up for the idea, you know, came up with the idea for this character's look. And the more that I was putting on the costumes, the more I got into it and was inspired to be like a mix of Prince and Michael Jackson. And I said out loud, oh, my God, I thought of Prince when I saw him for the first time. Well, and you're right, because I mean, the the costuming absolutely looks like those two characters put together. Yeah, like he's effeminate in attire, but completely still a man, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and like showing that there a lot of the characters in this movie play with that line of gender, like even, you know, Lilu being the star female character leans into masculine sometimes. And, you know, then you have Ruby Ride leaning into feminine and then you have people in the audience at the opera and the diva. Can we talk about her costume? Yeah. 
really cool, beautiful. So, oh my god, I want to do that cosplay now. <laughs> I, you know, and I think that's one of the things that that really stands out. This film is is the way that it is costumed. You know, and 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 again, that's one of the things that sets the movie apart with the look of the film. And I think one of the things that makes it work is that it fits with the kind of outlandish nature of everything else that they did with um you know i mean obviously the cabs it's a throwback right it looks like a uh you know mm-hmm. a, a a cab you would hail today maybe in in new york you know the classic um look but at the same time you know it 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 also fits within this world and you know the fact that they're still going to mcdonald's and um you know mm-hmm. and I also think what kind of works here is the interesting nature of in Star Trek The Next Generation, in the very first episode, they kind of have a look of of what um, soldiers look like in um, the future, like from the 22nd century uh, of our world. And they're similar to this look here, where it's, 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 it's almost like ultra militaristic police officers you know that are like in all of this body armor and everything so that all felt really interesting and and again it felt like it was kind of pulling from things that i had seen before so in many ways i'm just judge dread again impressed with how everything in the film works towards one cohesive feel like, you know, um, you, you sometimes have those feel, films with it you watch where something just feels off, um, whether it's, you know, the costuming or whether it's the music or whether it's, you know, um, the effects or just something like that. And, and I think this is a movie that, that genuinely um, you could tell that everybody behind it had put it a lot of work together to make sure that this felt like um, a a movie that all belonged together 100 percent, and i you know i think that if you hadn't had such great effects and creatures and costumes all working together that it wouldn't has have have been as good of a movie right um but well and i mean we should also talk about that i think that the costuming work that they do for uh the creature design is phenomenal. Uh, you know, I think it's mm-hmm. excellent work. You know, it still holds up, and so mu- much of it is real on-screen uh, stuff. And, you know, in many ways, it's the kind of thing that we'll see them continue to refine in, in costuming uh, till what we get in, like, what we see in The Mandalorian, right? You know, this this continues that type of trend in the sense that the the shoulders we see people standing on now come from things like this we're really pushing the boundaries of characters wearing costumes yet at the same time having these um, massive uh you know animatronic heads and things like that so i i really you know i again was impressed with that as well because all of that really still works for the most part in this film yeah, like the look of the actual aliens that came down to Egypt. Mm-hmm. Uh, these like huge looming metal suits. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I even saw someone at Dragon Con one time do that costume and I was blown away because for one, just the size of yeah. it. <laughs> but that design is so unique. 
And it even looks more friendly when you're using it to depict a, you know, good group mm-hmm. of people. It's interesting that it gives off that vibe. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, the, then the hunters that Zorg's using as well. I mean, those guys look great mm-hmm. uh, as well. And, and just the way that they uh, really uh, th- their facial structures and, and how that all moves to is just phenomenal. So I think it's it's really good. Um, and uh, I, I think and, you know, another thing that's really uh, interesting about this movie is that they almost didn't get to have Bruce Willis in the role just because of of the cost of him at that point you know bruce willis was a big deal Mm -hmm. um and and so but i can't imagine this movie without him like i don't think this movie really works because in many ways he's kind of playing that character uh that he made famous in die hard um and you need that guy who's like rough and tough but at the same time um really has a heart in this film. Yeah, I think that it's so interesting hearing that it could have been Mel Gibson instead. <laughs> I was like, no, it just is not the Mel Gibson role. What we know him as, you know, being so great in, this isn't his MO. I think that you definitely, like you said, had to have Bruce Willis for this kind of character. And two, it's nice to see, you know, like the scene where he lays down on the bunk bed and is telling his friend about how he met this girl. Mm -hmm. It's like he suddenly softens and it's really sweet. And then, you know, like when he asks her her name or tries to wake her up and chooses to kiss her and gets a gun to the head, Um, you know, it just it's so funny the way that he can play with this character and then also have that tough side um, and be that protector. But it's like a, it's a very 50 50 relationship between Corbin and Lilu. They both protect each other. Yeah. I, I think that you were, you really nailed something when you said that it's about him having a tough tie side and a soft side all at the same time. Like that's really key to this role. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Bruce Willis, I think pulls that off because you know, he ends up having this really important role to play in helping this perfect being um, do the job that she's meant to do. And without him, you know, we the universe wouldn't go on because evil would have taken over. And that is all down to him, the fact that it's because he's got not just a he's not just a tough guy. He's got a, a heart. He's got a soft heart. Um, and him making that work is is really paramount to this film. And it's interesting, too, that they have his character a couple of times mentioned before he ever even meets Lulu mm-hmm. that he hasn't gotten over his ex-wife. Mm-hmm. And he's still looking for the, quote unquote, perfect woman. And so it's just so, you know, ironic that they choose those words and then she literally falls into his yeah. lap. Yeah, <laughs> or his cat. Um, <laughs> or his cat. Yeah, no, I I agree with you, and um, and it's interesting too because you know you have him playing with uh against Mila Jovovich, who is um I think great in this role. I think one of the things that really helps is that you know she's not really um at least for most people I think at that point a household name at all. You know, um, she's been in, in Days and Confused. She's been in some other things. Um. But, you know, most people probably really aren't as familiar with her at this point. And she does such a great 
job because part of this is she's having to speak a language which nobody understands um, and mm-hmm. emote uh, in, in all of that. And I mean, just like her being like, ooh, chicken, good. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, she's she's hysterical. But at the same time, um, she has a ton of gravitas and she makes you feel for this character and what she's going through. She obviously can pull off the action, um, and she does it really well. And of course, you know she's going to go on and do the Resident Evil uh, movies, which you know uh, she, I, there are like a thousand of those now. Um, but she's excellent mm-hmm. at that. But she really makes this work. I mean, um, again, like you said, Bruce Willis and her are partnership in this film, and without her. I do think um, it it would be a detriment to the movie. For sure. She is the heart of the movie. You know, I think that it's her that really shows the audience through her eyes everything that humanity is doing wrong. You know, like it's saying she's got to watch through all of this stuff in the computer to learn about what she's been missing on Earth so she can catch up and then know where to begin to mm-hmm. save it. And she's talking to Corbin about how terribly sad it is seeing the war that humanity has been through and seeing the thing, the way that people treat one another and, you know, the trash and, you know, all of the terrible things that she sees. So you do feel that sense of, yeah, I kind of agree with Lilu sometimes of what is worth saving. Um, and so it's that even glass half full, glass half empty question of it's all in how you look at it. And that Corbin is the one that comes in and says, this is what is worth Mm -hmm. saving. That there are still a lot of wonderful things, even though you see a lot of bad things. Yeah. No, I mean, she, the way that she's able to play the role in, in such a childlike way. Yeah, at the same time, she's mm-hmm. obviously just completely dangerous as a being, you know, um, and I think it, it really works, you know, and there's, I think it helps again, the fact that, you know, she is somebody that people aren't as familiar with. And so to come in and play something like this, you know, if you come up and and you come in with any preconceptions about who that person is as an actor, it can hurt the the role but here i don't think that is the case at all because you know she just gets to be this character you know without any mm-hmm. of your preconceptions about who or what she can play or can't play um and she she's able to to rock the idea of being you know the the perfect being and so i do think it you know it, it really works and and so i really like her in the role and and gosh so glad to you know um Basan was a is already was a big fan of um Gary Oldman. They were friends. Mm-hmm. And he's just so good in anything he does, and he's just hysterical in this role as Zorg. Yeah, I was wondering too if they even had like a um denture piece that they put over his teeth to make him look like he had more buck teeth to play this character because it, it looked very intentional. But yeah, I mean his Costuming was so cool, but he really came in and just made it so much more evil. And, you know, even having that more sniveling side of he's even just 
thinking that he is the one in charge, but is really just a pawn for Mr. Shadow, um, I think is interesting. And he's so good. I mean, like you said, like we've seen him in so many other things and there's a reason why. Right. I mean, I think that he's sort of that person that could play the perfect villain every time. Yeah. You know, I think what really made him work in this was the fact that he was fantastic at playing somebody who's just completely amoral and absolutely mm-hmm. sees nothing wrong with it. Like, you know, he he plays it off as it is as if it is the most normal thing in the world to be the way he is and to think the way he does. And so I mm-hmm. think that's, you know, uh, you, you need a character who can really sell that, who who completely is in love with himself uh, and what he thinks he's going to get, you know, in this process. And so, um, and then, it would, you know, somebody who's legitimately, you could believe, would be willing to sell the soul of the entire human race uh, for his own benefit, basically. Um and he, mm-hmm. again, I mean, I don't know if it's a compliment to say, but he plays it perfectly. And I think that is a testament to just how good, um, you know, that Gary Oldman is. Like, he, he can play anything. And I think he does this really well. Yeah, I'm with you. And and too, I, I think the scene that jumps out the most to me is his best scene in this movie is when he is talking about his plan to take over the world and starts choking on a cherry. (laughs) And the priest says, and it all comes raining down because of a little chest. Well, (laughs) and and that's where, you know, Ian Holm playing Vito Cornelius, you know, he does a really good job as well, I think, Um, you know, being the priest who is, is the one which is, uh, charged with this mission that's been going on for generations of priests waiting for their time. And I thought this was, you know, he was, he's just so much fun. And I think that was also his best scene, uh, you know, where, because I thought he really got a chance to uh, portray all sides of this character. You know, kind of the the bumbling mm-hmm. guy who's not quite sure how to help. But here, you know, he plays um, a, a little bit of vindictiveness, you know, like a, a little bit of um, self-righteousness uh, in some ways, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, the movie kind of helps you believe that he's earned with uh, the way that Zorg has been acting. So, but... He was great. I mean, Ian Holm is is such a good actor. Obviously, you know, most people probably know him from Lord of the Rings, uh, playing Bilbo. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's he's really fun in this movie, and I think you can tell he's just having a good time with it. Right. Yeah. I I think that he, he obviously I knew him from Lord of the Rings first, but he is just so funny. And I do think you can tell he's having a good time. I think especially in this every scene where um, Lilu just starts undressing in yeah. front of everyone and he has to turn around. He's <laughs> like, oh, I can't get her to stop doing that. Um, and he, uh, yeah, I think that that's his best scene too. I'm glad you said that because he really gets to show he's not just the fool or the guy that's there with this divine purpose, but also can be human and make mistakes and be more of that 
self-righteous, vindictive person of, you know, saying, well, you know, you deserved it. But then deciding that he is the good person he thinks he is and saves the guy's life anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, in some ways, you know, with him being the priest, you know, it's kind of like he's trying to make a point to that, you know, to Zorg. And Zorg's too far gone to get the message or to care. But Mm -hmm. his message is is true of, you know, what good is all of this if nobody's there to save you uh, when, you know, you've got a cherry stuck in your throat and, you know, there's no... yeah. You got no droid that's going to help you. You know, you you got no robot that's going to help you. You got no friends. So what good is it? And I think there's a, that is a, a really good message. And it makes that scene, I think, really powerful in the movie. Um, you already talked a little bit about Chris Tucker. But obviously, I think for me, this is probably one of the first movies I really remember um, kind of seeing him uh, in, in, in a big role. You know, uh, and then, of course, he'd be in like Rush Hour and all those type of movies, which is really interesting. So, you know, he had a a big two for one, really, in many ways. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, I'm sure for some people he probably gets on their nerves. But I think he's fantastic in this role and he plays it, um, you know, in many ways, he's he's the same side of the coin as Zorg. Like, he's just absolutely self-absorbed, only cares about himself, you know, um, and that, and it's interesting to see those two sides of the same coin. Like, it, it, he really is mm-hmm. just the same. Um, and I, I think it's good for the movie. And, you know, he's pretty sinking funny. Well, and it just, it's so funny that, you know, he's not intentionally trying to do bad in the world right. like Zorg is, but he's just as selfish. Yes. He doesn't even notice that, you know, everything in every scene he's in is about how it affects him, yep. not anyone else, not even humanity. <laughs> it's about how it affects him. <laughs> like, you know, he gets in the spaceship after the long fight scene on the um, cruise ship and says, I think that was the best show I ever yeah. did. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I, I definitely see how it being such a in-your-face character could bug some people and rub you the wrong way. But for me, it was like he completely won me over because it was this um, really over-the-top character, but also because he, like I said, doesn't he's not trying to do bad. He does end up helping, um, but he's learning things along the way and that maybe becoming a little bit less selfish um seeing that you know there's so much more at stake going on than just your one little life <laughs> yeah no i completely but, agree yeah. and i i think it works you know i think he does a really good job uh in the film and he i mean i, I don't and i can't think of any other person who could have played this the same way uh and and done as yeah. good of a job as he does in it. And so. And I mean, you know, what girl out there that saw this movie doesn't want to be a stewardess having him whisper in your ear? I'm, I'm I don't know. Um, I'm a little creeped out by that part personally, but you know. <laughs> yeah. You don't They're need some stamps because he's going to send Christy. you home. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> it says in the credits, stewardess. True. true. Um, no, 
I, one of the things you kind of mentioned earlier, and it is, you know, something that, you know, this is a theme of the film, which Basan, you know, he knew the movie was big and goofy, but he did want this one big theme, which was, you know, what's the use of saving life when we see what we do with it? And I think it is a really big question, you know, um, and I think the reality of the answer to that question is actually a little bit harder than we might even get in the movie, which is we're really, we're not really worth saving. You know, like there's nothing about us that is worth saving when, especially when we look at what we do with our lives, you know, and what we do with um, the power we have and what we do. Um, and just none of those things make us, I think really uh, worth saving and yet there there are some things that that make life beautiful and 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 the big answer is is really um love and i thought it was interesting that this movie and, and interstellar really share that theme which is that it's love that transcends time and space and it's love that that makes things um uh, worth it you know that is the hopeful counterbalance to things like war um, and I, I, you know, mm-hmm. again, this movie's big and silly and crazy, but I really like that part of the film. Yeah, that to me is the thing that brings it all together and that gives it the heart that makes me want to come back and keep watching it. That it even shows, you know, on the lines of what you're saying, that love transcends all these other things. For Corbin and Lilu, it also transcended language. You know, and and we see that in real life when people that don't speak the same language can somehow fall in love. There's clearly something between two people that doesn't require words where it, you know, grows that bond and you see similarities in each other. And I think that that's something that is worth saving. And I think that it also the movie makes you ask that question of yourself, you know, like, how do you feel about that? Um, does it make you feel like there are things that are still good in the world and worth saving? So I think that the fact that it has that is the best part of the whole thing. And then everything else is just fun stuff. Well, and, and what's interesting, too, is because we talked about this a little bit, but, you know, you have this kind of unbridled selfishness of Zorg or even as we talk about Ruby. But then you have mm-hmm. this, and I labeled it, and I don't know if it makes any sense, but this kind of pessimistic selflessness of of Corbin Dallas. Like, you know, he's he is willing to put his life on the line for something he really cares about, you know, uh, and, um, mm-hmm. and willing to put his life on the line for the rest of the world and the rest of the universe, you know. And so I do think that there is that. It's not just that he, you know, falls in love with Lilu. I, I think also he could have pointed to the fact that he's willing to do whatever it takes to save the the universe, even if it would or cost him his own life. And that, that is kind of the big message that, you know, we've talked about over and over again with so many things we watch, but this, this idea between, you know, what do we do with the life we've been given? Do we live a completely selfless life? Do we live a completely selfish life where it's only about us and we're willing to hurt or anybody to get what we want? Or are we willing to live a life that we might not get everything we want, but it's actually going to be better for everyone around us, you know, um, to be selfless, to be loving, to be sacrificial. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, this movie has some of that. And I think 
it is the thing, like you said, it, it keeps me coming back too because it's not just a big, dumb adventure. Um, it really does have something to say. It has something to make us think. And, you know, I, I, I the more, you know, we live in the world we live in today, the more I see that this is something that, you know, truly is, is for us to think about, you know, like, um, mm-hmm. and whether it's, is, um, whether it's down to our, like our fandoms, you know, how we interact in our fandoms all the way to how we interact on, uh, you know, a corporate level as a country and, and as a world. And, you know, like you just think about all these ideas. I think it's good. Yeah, I think that that's something you can always take away from this is how it affects all these other areas of your life and your own outlook on it. So I know you and I are definitely on the same page with that. And the I know we say it a lot, but the selfishness versus selflessness of it all, I think, seems to keep coming back. Yeah, and it is interesting, you know, because obviously that's such a huge thing in the Star Wars franchise. But I, I think it is something to which... You know, um, so many filmmakers do come back to because we realize intrinsically that we can't live in a way where a world is completely amoral. We can't live in a way where there's no, you know, right or there, there's not a right or wrong, you know, that, that there isn't some kind of basis mm-hmm. for morality or any of these things because it doesn't work. And what we truly want is there to be a life where people are more selfless than they are selfish because we realize that that's actually better even if we don't necessarily live like that all the time uh and i I think that's fascinating that that tension to which we live in because i think our human nature calls us to be more selfish than we are selfless and it takes a lot more work to be selfless than it is selfish uh and and i think that's that's the thing about human nature um and this movie has something to say about human nature you know, because I think we see, again, it's much easier to be on the selfish side. Because even if you're just like Ruby, where you're just, you're not intentionally being selfish, it's just all about you, yeah. you know? And so you'll, you do what you want. And, and again, you, it, it's, it's not like you're intentionally trying to hurt people, but you just don't care enough, you know, because right. you're the center of your own universe. So. Yep. What did you think about, and, and this was something that, because I haven't seen the movie in a, in a while, um, so coming back to it, I was really surprised, uh, you know, to, uh, to, to listen to the soundtrack and how, you know, this is a movie from 97, but it sounds like an 80s soundtrack. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think that definitely when you first hear the, um, that more like futuristic, instrumental music um it reminded me a lot of like things that you might hear on um like blade runner um or even you know like running man i don't know more movies like that um it it's just very like aggressive techno sounding stuff so i get what you're saying for sure yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things is is that, you know, it works. Um, and there's a ton of uh, of kind of like mixtures of, of music, whether it's kind of got some reggae to it or opera, instrumental futuristic music. Um, there's a, but it, it kind of all flows into much more of an 80s soundtrack sound. 
But I think mm-hmm. that's what makes it kind of work because this movie in many ways, even though it's made in 97, it does feel like an 80s film almost, you know, with the, yeah. um, because the clothing again, like we talked about the costuming, so much of the costuming kind of feels like the punkness of the, the 80s, you know, um, and mm-hmm. like a futuristic punk. And uh, I think the, the music uh, and then by kind of having more of an 80s feel feels really good. But, you know, I, I think the, the, the paramount and the I think the pinnacle of the music in the movie is obviously the opera scene and how well it works with, you know, the fight we get with Lilu, which was uh, really, really well done. And a scene that, you know, you kind of almost want to rewind and watch again. <laughs> Yeah, I I love that timing of them pairing the beats of the music with her punches mm-hmm. because I literally every time start punching in the air because I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think that it it's really cool how they can include so many different kinds of music together and it still works. Um and in the reggae scene, it works to have reggae there because they're showing that like these are like the guys that are hanging out just doing their everyday job trying to get the vehicles ready to launch and they've got their music on. You know, it's a very like laid back scene of just some guys doing their job. And then, you know, with the opera, they're at an opera. Right. So it makes sense to have opera music. And uh it, actually, side note too, I don't know if you've seen, but there have been YouTube videos of actual opera teachers like voice coaches evaluating this scene and whether her singing the certain way she does is capable by a regular human being trying to sing opera you know the piece in the middle where she gets really quick with the Mm -hmm. beats um because it sounds almost computerized and turns out that part is it makes sense. It's not physically possible. Yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> uh, but no, I think it, it definitely, like you said, works. And part of that is the way that they do the the different genres of music they'll use is that it does help with the world building um, for uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the universe that they're kind of creating in this future universe. So, uh, yeah, I think it all works. So, um I guess uh, maybe a silly question, but what would you rate the fifth element? Well, I think you just answered your own question with the name of the movie. What would you rate the fifth element? Five out of five. It's the fifth element. You have to. So you're saying you give it five elements. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to rate it five Lulu's out of five. Um, it's, it's something that I've watched a million times over. I think that has such big theme life questions that always keep me coming back. And then it's got actors that I love that, you know, I originally remember being concerned even as a young person that having such big name actors all in the same movie is not a good idea, but they work in this movie. And some of them, you know, never actually appear in the same scene together. And I think also helps that, um, but it put Mila Jovovich on the map to then go on to do Resident Evil. Um, and every year at conventions, I see somebody dressed up as either oh, yes. the Dragon flight attendants or as her. Lilu's out there. <laughs> yeah, either in the thermal bandages or the um, crop top and pants. 
which I've thought of doing at some point. I usually feel like but, I've uh, seen the thermal bandages, but <laughs> it seems to be very <laughs> popular, especially at Dragon Con. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's just so much fun. Uh, yeah. And I, and sharing it with my dad, you know, I, I always have, I feel like some kind of quote from this movie that comes mm-hmm. up in regular conversation. And I hate when people don't get the joke when I'm like, negative, I am a meat popsicle. Nice. And, and and then that's the reaction, and I'm like, like Fifth come on, guys, Have you ever seen it? Come on, no, okay, I know I'm yeah. a nerd. Yeah, no, um, so I I think I'm gonna give this uh, four out of five Infinity Stones because that's kind of what those are, right? You know, um, and oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I know, but I it, I like this movie a ton. And I, I think it's so much fun to watch. Uh, I really have a good time with it. Um, I do think if I could do anything, I might have toned down a few of the scenes with Ruby a little bit, just for me personally. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, it doesn't ruin my enjoyment of this film, and I had a blast rewatching it. So it, it's absolutely uh, just a thrill to have gone back and seen it. It looks great in 4K too, uh, by the way. So, uh, yeah, I, I love that we got a chance to, to talk through it. And, I, you know, it really is. It, it's What's interesting is, you know, again, this is a, mo- a movie that didn't quite hit with audiences right away, but it's become a movie that people have kind of grown to love. So I think that's really fun. Now... Uh, it is that time of the show that there, Christy, where we give our recommendations. And so I'm wondering what you would like to recommend to the folks today. Yeah, I have a really interesting one. I actually have gotten into some of the other more obscure movies on HBO Max. And don't know if you've seen it yet, Matt, but I highly recommend watching The King of Staten Island. Oh, okay. Starring Pete Davidson. Uh, and it actually was written by uh, Pete Davidson and Judd Apatow and directed by Apatow and is a semi-biographical movie about Pete Davidson's life as uh, the child of a firefighter who died in the September 11th attacks. Mm. And and what it's like living in Staten Island um, during that time and trying to move on from something like that in your life um, happening mm. when you're a kid. So um, it's a really emotional story, but also just because it's Pete Davidson, it's got that humor element to it. And especially for me, I like the dark humor that he has because he does mention in the movie and in you know real life all the time that he also has Crohn's disease, which I have. Um, so, yeah, it, he's so great at bringing the mood back up a little bit with a, a dark joke but still making it an interesting thing to watch. So I think you'll love it. I recommend watching King of Staten Island. That's great. Um, well, I'm going to recommend to people since uh, Snyder Cuts is coming uh, soon. Uh, it's just right over the corner. So I'm going to recommend you go back and uh, rewatch the early works of Zack Snyder. So Dawn of the Dead, 300, and Watchmen you'll be want to be look forward to. Uh, mm. All three of those, of course, Watchmen, make sure you're watching the director's cut because that's what we'll be talking about. But... Yeah, it's been fun to go back. Uh, John and I have been recording those episodes. We're getting them together for everybody. Uh, and it's been really fun to uh, you know dig into that together. And we've had some fantastic conversations, so I can't wait for you guys to hear that. But that's going to be my recommend uh, for everybody. So, Christy, though, if people would like to catch up with you and, of course, see what you've got going on, where can they find you online? 
You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Bespin Bell. And of course, I'm also on Facebook, uh, occasionally chiming in on the Babel Conference. So uh, you can find me there. And then I do another show aside from 602 Club. I do called Sabres and Spells with my good friend Amanda DeFonzo. And we're on the Skywalking through Neverland Network and once a month talking about whatever geeky, girly stuff that tickles our fancy. So uh, we actually just did a episode reviewing WandaVision, which is coming out this month. So I hope that you guys will check that one out. And that's at Sabres and Spells on Instagram and Twitter as well. And uh, you can find me on uh, all the social media platforms. If I'm there, it's Matt Rushing Zero Two. Uh, I'm here on the network, of course, doing uh, literary treks in the orb with uh, Chris Jones. Uh, literary treks is about the books and the comics of Star Trek, and of course, the orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Snyder Cuts is coming, so keep out a look for that. You can find me on the Nerd Party Network doing two shows. One is called Owl Post with Dre Kaufman. As we talk about Harry Potter each and every week, one chapter at a time, we literally only have 10 episodes left. Uh, so I hope you will join us for that. It's been so much fun walking through that series. Uh, and then, of course, um, walking through all things Star Wars with John Mills over on Aggressive Negotiations, which is a Star Wars podcast. But guys, thank you. But y'all, thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? here.